Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Again, before we get to the PowerPoint, I have a few things to say. And uh, as uh, I said in my previous talk, uh, this is, um, I have a limited amount of time to talk to you about the subject today, and I'm certain that I'm not going to be able to cover everything uh, that uh, I want to in the time that I have. Uh, that's the bad news, but the good news is that it's all here. And... Um, <laughs> It's uh, available on Amazon and any other uh, site that you want, even in your local bookstore, although there are fewer and fewer local bookstores uh, in the world now. Um, but this really is uh, the subject of, uh, of the survival of Hasidism uh, in the New World, in, in America. Um, let me begin first by giving you a little background to what Hasidism is and... and uh, and how this whole story fits into the history of Hasidism. And again, even there, uh, as uh, the rabbi mentioned, there is a, a new book that's come out on the history, a, a new so-called new history of Hasidism. It is uh, a book that's very hard to put down because it's very hard to pick up. It's about five and a half pounds. <laughs> and, uh, but it really covers everything that we, have, we know about Hasidism from its very beginnings in the 18th century through what was called its golden age in the 19th century to what today I would call its platinum age, where it's actually uh, never has there been, have there been more Hasidim uh, than we find today. They've grown in large measure because uh, some of the things that limited their growth in the past no longer exist, which is an opposition to them, pogroms, uh, bad health, the lack of welfare. They live in a place where, although, as I mentioned in my earlier talk, people warn them against coming to America. Okay, let's hope that this is the solution, um, uh, that uh, here Jews might survive, but Judaism would not. Uh, they have come uh, to a place where they really are surviving quite well. Uh, nobody's out to kill them. Uh, they live long. In fact, as you'll see, one of the problems is uh, that their leaders sometimes live too long because they live into their dotage. Uh, as you can see, uh, this is one of the people that we'll talk about, the, the Rebbe of Munkach, who's also on the cover of the book. And he's sitting there with somebody that uh, may be familiar to many of you, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, another Jew, uh, then when he was the uh, mayor of New York City. Um, the power, the political power of these Rebbes is not to be uh, denied. So uh, what we are going to see is really the, the growth of how Hasidism has survived uh, in the New World and how 
it deals with its own continuity. That's really the subject of my talk this evening. So first, to go back to the uh, kind of background that you need. Uh, critical to Hasidism is the belief that there are certain people who are extraordinary, extraordinary in, in the fullest sense of the term. That is that they have some qualities that make it possible for them to have a relationship, a direct relationship with the Almighty. And through that relationship with the Almighty, it is possible for them to move the world, to steer the world, as one of them said. And that person is called, or was called in the beginning, a tzaddik, uh, an unusual man, uh, as always a man, a person who had powers uh, above and beyond, uh, sounds like Superman, but above and beyond uh, the rest of us. Now, the first, even before the movement that we call Hasidism, or modern Hasidism, there were people who were known as Baleshem, people who had the power of the name, the name meaning the ineffable name of God. And perhaps the most famous of those you've probably heard of, a man named uh, Yisrael ben Eliezer, Israel uh, uh, ben Eliezer, the Baal Shem Tov, uh, the master of the, the good name, known very often by the acronym Besht. And the Baal Shem Tov, uh, started, uh, they didn't know that it was going to be a movement, but he started the idea that there could be these charismatic figures who had this relationship with God and were able to use that relationship, that power, uh, to be unified with God, as it were, to really act on behalf of human beings. And in fact, <clears throat> in, uh, in our book on Hasidism that I mentioned, The Doorstopper, uh, there we find even references in uh, in the census to the Baal Shem Tov. He's listed on the census in the town of Mezabish where he lived as Dr. Baal Shem. And the truth was that in those days, people went to Baal Shem uh, for their sicknesses. And it was probably better to go to a Baal Shem than it was to go to a doctor. A doctor was likely to kill you with the things that they did in those days, whether it was bleeding you or putting... Uh, doctors were not... a a good place to go to live for a long life. A Baal Shem, what, can, you know, what could he hurt? <coughs> and he prayed, he'd give you an amulet, and if you got better, you thought, well, he was really something special. And the Baal Shem Tov had, I wouldn't call them disciples, but there were people who gathered around the Baal Shem Tov, and those early uh, leaders, also one of the, one of the most famous, the Magad of Mizrich, there were a number of them, and out of them there grew this movement. And You've heard, many of you have heard of some of these people. They were really charismatic leaders, these tzaddik, these tzaddikim. Later on, we will use the word rebbe. Uh, but the, the, the primary concept was of this extraordinary human being, this tzaddik, a larger-than-life figure. And I say a charismatic authority. When I use the term charisma, I mean somebody who had not... Charisma, sometimes people say, oh, you know, Kennedy had charisma. That meant he had a nice haircut. No, it was not. Uh, <clears throat> that's not what charisma is. Charisma means that uh, prophets have charisma, right? They have this something that cannot be articulated in words, but it, it is so powerful that 
uh, if they, they could say to you, uh, the loss is thus and so, but I say unto you, and you're ready to follow them because you believe in their extraordinary power. That's what we mean by charisma. And they were very much taken up by the idea of mysticism. But their mysticism was what we would call this worldly mysticism as opposed to otherworldly mysticism. Often mystics are people who withdraw from the world. You know? And to be sure, there were some Hasidic rebbes like, for example, Mendel of Kotsk, who you may have heard of, who really did withdraw from the world. He was depressive. He lived alone, and he was really not with a lot of people. But most... Uh, tzaddikim, Hasidic tzaddikim, were this worldly. That is, they believed that you could use mysticism, Kabbalah, and various kinds of blessings and amulets and, and prayers and all kinds of things, but that you could use them in this world, that it didn't require you to withdraw from this world. And they had people who became their disciples, their followers, who believed in them. In return for what they offered, uh, these people uh, really were, were their followers in every sense. And the term that the followers used to describe themselves was Hasidim, that they were Hasidim of. You are not a Hasid, you are a Hasid of someone. They were Hasidim of a particular tzaddik. What did he offer them? Well, there were really three things that often, they often used the, these terms, these three different things that a tzaddik could offer. It was chaye bone mezone. What does that mean, chaye bone mezone? Chaye means life. That is, you would come to the tzaddik and beg for your good health to be able to live. Rebbe, give me a blessing. I need a blessing. I'm sick. Do you have a blessing for my wife? Do you have a blessing for my children? I want, I, I want, uh, I, I want to be, we want to live. The second thing was mazone. I need a parnasa. Rebbe, pray that I should be able to make a parnasa. And bone. I want to have children. And we know that uh, you've only to read the Bible portions that we're going to now, that we have a long history with people having problems having children. Our forefathers had problems having children, at least two out of the three. <coughs> and the fact of the matter is that, indeed, those three things were what the Hasidim ex expected from the Rebbes, from the Tzaddikim. And in return, the Hasidim did not only live for, um, I'm sorry, the Rebbes did not only live for their Hasidim, they also lived off their Hasidim. That is, the Hasidim gave them what's called a pidyon, a redemption. Uh, they gave them mamad, they gave them money. They, they would come, and they, to this day, will come to the Rebbe and say, I, I'm begging you for a bracha. I'm begging you to intercede on my behalf. I'm, pray for me. Do what for, you want for me. And at the end, or at the beginning, they slip them a little note, and in that note, you know what is in there. There's something in there for the Rebbe. And, of course, the Hasidim were not only... Uh, leaders. They were not only people who, who uh, in a sense, sustained spiritually in every other respect their Hasidim, uh, but the Rebbes were also what we might call a symbol, a collective representation. So, for example, why was the mayor 
meeting with the uh, Munkacher Rebbe, and why is the governor of New York meeting with one of the two Satma Rebbes, and why uh, is the former uh, governor of New York meeting with yet another Rebbe? Because we know that when political candidates, at least in New York, and probably if you were to Google a rabbi and president of the United States, you'd see a lot of Hasidim there with, pick not maybe the current president, but other presidents. You would see them with uh, the president of the United States because in many ways, Hasidic rebbes have come to be representations actually of all Jews. You know, when, when a candidate wants to tell you the Jews, I'm for you, he gets his picture taken with a Hasidic Rebbe with a long, the longer the beard, the better. Even though, ironically, they don't represent most of the people in this room or most of the American voters and so on and so forth, but they do have this kind of iconic power. Uh, Rebbe's moved through Eastern Europe. They moved through the Pale of Settlement. And as the movement grew, and it grew by leaps and bounds, they really represented something revolutionary because unlike uh, Judaism until then, the rabbis, as opposed to the rabbis and the tzaddikim, the rabbis said that it was scholarship. It was the study of Torah that was the most important thing and that if you were a simple person who didn't have the capacity to study Torah, if you hadn't gone to the yeshivas, if you hadn't really acquired that kind of knowledge of Judaism, then you were at the lowest level, and it was, it was the scholarship, the intellectual side of things, that really was the most important element of Judaism. What, what Hasidic leaders said is no. It was devotion. It was prayer. There were many ways to encounter God, and you didn't need to do it yourself because your Rebbe did it for you. Your Rebbe was the connection to God, and all you had to do was to cleave, dvekut, to cleave to your Rebbe, be attached to your Rebbe, and your Rebbe would pray for you. You would pray with your Rebbe. You would eat with your Rebbe. You would spend time in his presence but he would take care of you. He was the intermediary to God. And they moved through Europe, and they established themselves in various places, and they became known either by a book that they wrote or often simply by the name of the town in which they settled, in which they had most of their followers. I'm sure you've heard of some of these, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, all right, the Rebbe of Berdichev. He was the Berdichever. However, uh, they often were known also by uh, the books that they wrote, as I said. So, for example, uh, a Rebbe was known as the Yismach Moshe, Moshe Teitelbaum, a Rebbe uh, who lived between 1759 and 1841. He ultimately became known as the Zigeter Rebbe, but he was known as the Yismach Moshe because that was the name of the book that he wrote. Or a Rebbe known as the Minchas Elozer, Chaim Eliezer Shapiro, who was the Rebbe of Munkach, but he became known as the Minchas Elozer. Now, these Rebbes, as I said, they were extraordinary people, so nobody thought about their dying. After all, the Rebbes were extraordinary people. The, the first thing you don't ask, well, what happens when you die? You don't think that a Rebbe is going to die. 
right? Because the Rebbe has this an, an incredible relationship with the Almighty, and the Almighty is always there, and the Rebbe is his, uh, is his representative on earth, you might say. So in the beginning, no one thought about death. In fact, let's go back to Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. When the Berdichever died, that was it. There's no other Berdichever Hasidim. They went elsewhere. There was no thought about succession. But as it developed, and very soon, the Hasidim realized that it wasn't just their Rebbe that was important to them. It was their relationship with one another. And as long as they shared the Rebbe in common, they were together. But if the Rebbe was gone, they had to break up. There was nothing left. So now the question was succession. Who's going to be next? And with the question of death and succession, even though the tzaddikim were seen as one of a kind, really unusual people, extraordinary people, the question was, well, okay, now when they die, what's next? And the question then was, would be, who should be the next Rebbe? Should it be the primary disciple, the best student, the one who was closest to the Rebbe? And there were many people who thought that made sense, right? He was the one who understood the Rebbe best. He was the one that taught. He was the one that if you couldn't get to the Rebbe, you went to him. And others said, no, it has to be his son. Now, who would have an interest in the, it being the student? And who would have an interest in it being the son? Well, who would have a, a, an interest in having it as the son? The family. Because if you are the family of the Rebbe, and if when the Rebbe dies, his student becomes the next Rebbe, then what happens to the widow, or as I call her, the dowager Rebbetson? And what happens to his children? What happens to them? They're out. They're nothing. And the whole staff that built around him, and the whole family that not only lived for the Rebbe, but lived off the Rebbe. And so the first struggle, and I talk about this in the book, and we can see this really most dramatically in, in one of the dynasties, the the Chabad dynasty, the first battle was whether it should be when Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, or sometimes uh, Chabad Rebbe, I should say, not Lubavitch, it was called the Alta Rebbe, the old rabbi, when he died, and he was a larger-than-life figure. The question was whether his student, Rebbe Aaron, or whether his son, Baruch, would be the next Rebbe. And here, the question arose about what is the role, where does the charisma come from? Is it in the blood? Or is it in the learning of the Rebbe, in his teachings? And the, the, the struggle ultimately came to the feeling that the child of the Rebbe if it was a son, or if the Rebbe only had a daughter, it would be the son-in-law, and then the grandchild, or sometimes a brother. The idea was, the idea that won the day, by and large, was the concept of Zera Kodesh, holy seed. That is, the Rebbe said, and 
One of the Rebbes put it this way, when he had relations with his wife, heaven and earth moved. Now, he's not the first guy to say that. <laughs> but the idea was that in those relations, God was a silent partner. And the result of those relations was a child that, of course, had that holy seed and that he, con he contained within him something superior. And, of course, this was something that served the family interest because when the child, the son of the Rebbe, becomes the next Rebbe, what happens to the widow of the previous Rebbe? What is she? She's not just the widow of the previous Rebbe. What is she? She's the mother of the present Rebbe. And he's a younger Rebbe, and he has to listen to his mother. She's much more powerful in some ways than she ever was when she was the wife of the Rebbe. Being the mother of the Rebbe can be even better than being the wife of the Rebbe and the brothers of the Rebbe and the sisters of the Rebbe. And so much so that we can see that a term that emerges in the process of succession is that in certain cases, when a Rebbe died young, and that was not unusual because uh, people didn't live quite as long as they did, uh, as they do today, uh, that even here, even uh, that in those days, even if a child, if the next Rebbe was 12 years old, what they would call a Yanuka, a child, they would make him the Rebbe rather than the chief disciple because even a child Rebbe would have those extraordinary qualities. And of course, a child Rebbe could be shaped by the court and by the family and by the Hasidim and become greater. Now, really, whatever Rebbe had to have is, as I said before, charisma. So how did it work with succession? It worked in that when a new Rebbe takes over, he doesn't really have charisma. In spite of the concept of, of Zerah Kodesh, when the Hasidim remembered him in short pants, it's hard to think of him as the Rebbe. Right? So what he had, really, was the charisma of office. The fact that he was in this position, the office, the position, the chair, the crown, that gave him charisma. But over time, as the older Hasidim who remembered his father or father-in-law died and the younger looked to him and the longer he sat on the throne, the more the charisma of office evolved into genuine charisma. And so it went. So the Rebbe's charisma was key to his authority in the course of succession, he developed that charisma. Time gives them charisma as well. But in the beginning, it was possible that if one son became the Rebbe, what about his brothers? What could they do? They also wanted to be in the family business. They also wanted to, they also were Zerah Kodesh. They also were Holy Seed. So it was possible to go to another town 
and to establish a following there. So for example, the Ziggat Rebbe had many sons. His oldest son became the next Ziggat Rebbe, but he had a younger son. And the younger son, his mother loved the younger son. You know, they loved the younger sons often. The younger sons, we know in, in Jewish history, younger sons often do better than older sons. But he would go to another town. So the younger son went to another town. It took a long time till he found the town that was right for him. But he found a little town called Satumare. And he became the Satma Rebbe. And in time, he eclipsed his older brother who died younger. And he could do that. He could go to another town and become the Satma Rebbe. <clears throat> and all of this was fine. It meant that other sons in the course of succession could go elsewhere and establish themselves with a following. And because they were the sons of a famous Rebbe, that also gave them a little bit more. So when they came to this various new place, they were able to establish themselves. All of that was fine in Eastern Europe as Hasidism was growing. But then, of course, came the Holocaust. And the Holocaust changed everything. And Hasidism in Europe disappeared. It was decimated. And these Rebbes came to America and to Israel. And now all of those towns had, were endowed, and those titles were endowed with what we would call a sacred nostalgia. They were a little bit like before the advent of Uber and Lyft. They were a little bit like taxi medallions in the city of New York. There's a limited number of them, and they become more and more valuable. And so it was with these Hasidic titles. So if you were the Satma Rebbe, if you were the son of the Satma Rebbe, you couldn't go to another town. I'll be the New Rochelle Rebbe. I'll be the Scarsdale Rebbe. Those, you couldn't do that. You could only be the Satma Rebbe, and if you were in Williamsburg or if you were in somewhere else, you weren't going to be the Williamsburg Rebbe. You're going to be the Satma Rebbe. With the limitations on names, the issue now became... Who's going to be the Satma Rebbe? What about all the other kids? In addition to which, in Europe, not all the sons of Rebbe decided to stay in a family business. Some of them chose other pursuits. Some of them went out into the world. Some of them did other things. But as Hasidism in the post-World War II period became more and more orthodox and insular orthodox, or what we sometimes call ultra-orthodox, the idea that you would choose a life outside the Hasidic world became unthinkable, and certainly unthinkable for sons and sons-in-law of a Rebbe. So the result was that in some cases, when a Rebbe died, there were too many successors. But in other cases, it could happen that there were too few successors. So what my book deals with is three types of Rebbes, of three types of succession. I have two cases with too few successors. They ran out of people to be the next Rebbe. I have two cases with too many successors. They had too many people who wanted to be the Rebbe and only one title to be able to give away. And then I have one case where they said, we don't need a successor because we don't think he ever died. And you know what that case is. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. 
If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So what I want to do now is I can't tell you all of these stories. I can just tell you some of these stories. And I want to tell you some of these stories to give you an idea of how this, how this develops. So let's start first with a case of two few successors. And to tell that story, I need to start with this man right here that you see in the slide. I've mentioned him before, the Minchas Elazar. Chaim Shapiro of Munkach. Chaim Shapiro of Munkach. Munkach was a large city. It's hard to tell you what country it was in because the national boundaries kept changing. Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary. It was essentially Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian uh, Jewry. And the Minchas Elazar was a towering figure. Some of you may have seen there was a film done a while ago about Hasidim in America, Life Apart, and in that film, uh, there's a scene that you can find on YouTube of a very famous wedding, which we'll talk about in a minute, and there's a rabbi, a Hasidic rebbe, who stops in that movie and he warns the Jews of America, he says in Yiddish, if you Jews in America, if you will observe Shabbos, then everything will be good, but if you don't observe Shabbos, terrible things are going to happen to you. Of course, terrible things happen to the, the Jews who observed Shabbos in, in Europe, and the American Jews actually survived quite well, as it turns out. The Minchas Eloza was this towering figure, and uh, he had many, many Hasidim. He was really quite influential in Munkach. But he had no children. <clears throat> he had many Hasidim, and they worried. What will be, you know, what will be after 120 years? And after nearly eight years of marriage, this Hasidim came to him and said, Rebbe, you have to divorce your wife because you have no children. And his wife and he did not want a divorce, but they did. And with great tears. Um, and of course, because it couldn't have been his fault. Right? <laughs> he divorced his wife and he married another woman. Six years no children. Finally, he had a little girl. And he doted on this little girl. He loved her more than anything. <clears throat> he, she sat at his table. Um, she was the apple of his eyes. Hasidim were not very happy with the fact that she sat at the table because the women were not supposed to sit at the Rebbe's tish, at the Rebbe's table. But he said, well, if you're not happy with it, I won't be sitting at the table. So she sat at the table. And at the age of 11 or 12, she was betrothed to the son of the rabbi of Parchev from Poland, a man named Baruch Rabinovich. And um, Baruch Rabinovich, this is the, the, this is the man on the right here that you see. I hope you can see him here. Baruch Rabinovich was the son, the child, that the Minchas Elazar had always hoped for. And he doted on this young man who was his future son-in-law. And he traveled with him to Israel. And he essentially, in a, in a sense, adopted him. In those days, it was not unusual. You knew who your son-in-law uh, was going to be. <clears throat> and indeed, everyone knew 
that Baruch Rabinovich, when the time came, would be the next Munkacher Rebbe. Of course, what's the best way to assure a smooth succession? Can you think of a good example historically where a smooth succession was assured? Yeah, not so smooth. Remember that king who fell in love with the wrong woman and had to abdicate? No, not so smooth with that guy. But there's a better case. Moshe Rabbeinu and Joshua. How did that work? How do we know who succeeded Moses? God said so. God said so, right? And Moses said so. And they said, this is the guy. He's going to do it. And then Moses goes and dies. And how can you argue with that? The previous Rebbe... Moshe Rabbeinu is, of course, the first Rebbe. He says, this is the guy, and that's the guy. So, in a, in a sense, this was the case with the Rebbe of Munkach. And then it turned out, as you saw from those previous slides, that the Rebbe of Munkach, the Minchas Elazar, died relatively young. He developed cancer. He died soon, and in his 20s, Baruch Rabinovich becomes the next Rebbe of Munkach. Now, there's, of, of course, a problem for the Dowager Rebbetson when the next Rebbe is a son-in-law. What's the problem? Well, sons-in-law are not the same as sons. They don't listen to mothers-in-law the same way they listen to mothers. All of those problems that you can imagine in a family were there. Plus, he was from Poland, and they were from Hungary or from the Hungarian Jewish world, and they didn't share the same outlook. But all of that became moot because the Second World War began. And at that point, uh, he was a Pole, and he was being expelled from uh, Munkac, and he and his oldest son were on the run. And they ran, and they hid, and they managed to escape an internment camp, and they returned, and by then the family had moved to Budapest from Munkach. And Reb Baruch Rabinovich, the Munkacher Rebbe, said, there's no future here. We all have to leave. He told the Hungarian Jews who were gathered there in Budapest, you have to leave. There is no future here. Oh, I forgot to tell you one important thing. The Minchas Elazar, like so many of the Hasidim of the time, was a rabid anti-Zionist. Because they believed, and many still do believe, that only God will end the exile. And the idea that the exile would be ended by these secular, socialist, unbelieving Zionists was untenable. He was a radical anti-Zionist. Baruch Rabinovich is standing there telling his community, you have to go. And his mother-in-law, the Dowager Rebbe, says, no, nothing will happen. And he goes. He now has four sons. His oldest son, since that run from the Nazis, is not right. He has three other sons, and his wife is pregnant, and she's not well, and he's going to Palestine. And he goes to Palestine. 
And he comes to Palestine on the way. She delivers a child in Turkey in a stop. Uh, in, in, then Constantinople, now Istanbul. And he comes to Palestine and she's very sick. She has tuberculosis. And very shortly thereafter, she goes into a sanitarium and he is trying to raise these children on his own. He gets help from a sister who he has there. But within a year, his wife is dead. He takes in a nanny and he's trying to reestablish himself in Palestine as the Munkacher Rebbe. But the Munkacher Hasidim don't want any part of him because he went to Palestine. How could he go to Palestine of all places? And as he's in Palestine and he sees what's happening in Europe, he says, as some did, many did, we made a mistake. Zionism was the answer. If more of our people had come, they would have survived. And he tries to reestablish himself in Palestine. He can't. He goes to New York to try to reestablish himself. He can't. And he's having more and more doubts about what the future is for Munkach. And finally, he tries to get a job in the Palestinian, the, in the Jewish rabbinate. And the Zionists say, you? You from Munkach? No. You're not going to get a job in the Zionist rabbinate. And so he is stuck. He's got little children. He marries the nanny. The nanny who's not Hasidic, who's not part of that world at all. And he moves to Brazil. And he becomes the chief rabbi of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And he becomes, I don't know if you can see in this picture, it's not as clear because of the lighting. But he becomes, he abdicates as the Rebbe of Munkach. And he becomes the chief rabbi of Sao Paulo, Brazil. And you know what it means to be the chief rabbi of Sao Paulo, Brazil? It means to be the only rabbi in Sao Paulo, Brazil. <laughs> <clears throat> and his children, he now has a little girl and uh, four boys. And they're going to Portuguese schools with a cross on the wall. And he's driving a car and he's fixing a car and they even have a dog. And he's wearing a tie and he has a watch and he has an encyclopedia on his shelf. And every so often, some of the uh, Jews, the rabbis, are coming through Sao Paulo to help collect money for their institutions. And one of these rabbis comes through and he, he's not a chassid. He runs the Tel's yeshiva in Cleveland and he looks at these children and he says, he talks to them and he sees they don't know anything. And he says, how can it be that the grandchildren of the great rabbi of Munkach, the grandchildren of the Minchas Elazar, and they're ignoramuses when it comes to Hasidus and anything. And he persuades Baruch Rabinovich to send his children to a yeshiva in Cleveland. To the Tel's yeshiva, not a Hasidic yeshiva. And slowly but surely, they are instructed in what it means to be Jewish and Hasidic. In the meantime, Munkach has come to America and they don't have a leadership. And Hasidim without a Rebbe is very difficult. And they come to the conclusion they need a Rebbe, but they're not going to go to Baruch Rabinovich because he is an enemy. They're not going to go to his oldest grandson because he's not right. 
So they go to Chaim Elazar, the second grandson, who has the same name as the Minchas Elazar, and they say, we want you to become the Rebbe. And he says, I see how you treated my father. I don't want any part of this. This is not for me. So they go to his younger brother, the third child, the third son, Moshe Leib, and they say, we want you to be the Rebbe. What do I know about being a Hasidic Rebbe? I don't know anything. And he, he's in tells, and he doesn't know what to do. He keeps coming. Every so often, he comes back to New York to his aunt and uncle, and they're living a sort of modern Orthodox life. He likes to watch television. He's crazy about Perry Mason. <laughs> Becoming a, the Munkach Rebbe, he doesn't know. He doesn't know about this. And at a certain point, he's walking across the campus at Tel's yeshiva, and one of the kitchen hands looks at these boys, and they're running across the campus. It's an American yeshiva. It's a yeshiva, but it's an American yeshiva in the 1950s. And they see he's wearing a T-shirt, and they say, how can you boys be wearing a T-shirt? When I went to a yeshiva in Munkach, the boys wore white shirts. And Moshe Leib hears this, and he thinks... It's a message from God that he should be the Munkach Rebbe. And so he contacts the former Gabbai of his grandfather who's coming and looking for him, and he says, I'll do it. And slowly but surely, they transform him into the Munkach Rebbe. He has to grow a beard. They have to find him a wife. In the meantime, his father, in most cases, when a young son of a Rebbe becomes a Rebbe, where's his father? But here, his father is there. There are now going to be three Rebbes. The Rebbe Alava Shalom, may he rest in peace. The Rebbe Yemach Shemo Vizichro, the Rebbe we don't even want to know that he exists. And the new Rebbe, the young Rebbe, his son. And it comes to be that that, on the wedding, the wedding of Moshe Leib, he is going to be crowned at the same time, because you cannot be a Rebbe and not be married. He is going to be crowned the Rebbe. And his father says, I don't want you to be a Rebbe. At least go to college first. In case it doesn't work out, you'll have something you can do. Right? He's, he's already thinking like a modern man. And his son says to him, but Abba, if I go to college, I can't be a Rebbe. Because it had become the case that a university education was a completely different story from being Hasidic. And everyone is waiting tensely at the wedding. Will Baruch Rabinovich come to the wedding or not? And it really is a case of a father having this very difficult relationship. How can he watch his son take the position that once was his? The very Hasidim who weren't ready to support him are not supporting his son. And the wedding, at the wedding, an extraordinary thing happens. I'm not going to tell you what happens. We're going to have to read the book. We're running out of time. I want to talk a little bit about the other uh, uh, Rebbes and successions that we have talked about. But I will tell you that, in effect, 
the difficulty. It's almost, I call the chapter an Oedipal challenge. It really is the difficulty of watching your son become a Rebbe. That's something that very, in, in very few instances has it ever happened that the previous Rebbe has to watch his son take his position. But as you can imagine, it was not easy. And the relationship between the son and the father and the daughter and all of them becomes very fraught um, as it was. But this man that you see in the center today is, uh, I'm sorry, these, these slides are not as clear as they could be, but this is him right here, is today the Munkacha Rebbe. And it is an extraordinary transformation. He really had to learn how to be a Rebbe from scratch. And he couldn't learn from his father because his father had abdicated. We have very few cases of that. The second case that I want to talk about is the Rebbe of Boyan. The Biyana Rebbe was the youngest son of a long and storied dynasty in Austria-Hungary. And really at the um, dawn of the 20th century, there was no place left for him to go and establish himself in Europe. And so a cousin of his told him and, a, and another cousin that the Rimenover, that these two Rebbes should go to New York, that in New York they would be able to establish themselves in a new court. And so the Rimenover went ahead, and when he came to New York, it was an awful experience. New York was filled with all sorts of people who used to be Orthodox, but weren't really Orthodox anymore. And it was difficult to establish any kind of a court there. Biana Rebbe came to America. He didn't really want to stay. First, the Rimenover came, tried to stay, couldn't, started to collect money, and then caught pneumonia after he'd gone to the mikvah on a cold night and died. And by the time his cousin came, he was all alone. His cousin Biana came. He came to the Lower East Side and he established a small community there where most of his Hasidim, quote unquote, were American Jews. They didn't look like Hasidim. They were very much American Jews. They came to his congregation as so many of those early uh, American Rebbes discovered because they had a nostalgia for the old country. They liked to hear the songs. They had a particular affection for him. He was a very open and kind man. And he survived on the Lower East Side. And his children lived the American dream. They went to university. They got degrees. They had good jobs. And when first he had a stroke and then ultimately he died, the Hasidim, the Biyana Hasidim, came to these children and they said, who's going to be the next Rebbe? And none of them wanted it. One was an accountant. One was a social worker. They had other jobs. So they went to his daughter. And she was a social scientist teaching at Columbia. And she had a husband who was a psychologist and an educator teaching at Yeshiva University. And on weekends, he would dress like a chassid. And he knew a lot about chassidism. But you can't have a professor be a rebbe. So they didn't know what to do. They had no successors. So they went to the daughter's children. They went to the oldest son. And they said, we'd like you to be the Rebbe. The same thing that happened in Munkach. 
Rebbe, I don't know. I mean, we're living in the Bronx. I'll, I'll try. So they sent him to Israel, to the yeshiva there, to learn about his heritage and to become educated sufficiently to become their leader. And he tried it. And after about two years of this, he said, it's not for me. And he went on to become a rocket scientist living in California. <laughs> so they went to his, the second son, and they said, how about you? And he was a teenager, and he didn't know. He said, I'll try it. <laughs> and he became, in time, the Biana Rebbe. That's the man you see here on the left. And as their father used to say, I have two sons who deal with heavenly things. <laughs> One is a Rebbe, and the other is a rocket scientist. And the Biana Rebbe really had to learn from scratch what it means to be a Rebbe, and he learned from his cousins. And slowly but surely, he established a very successful dynasty in New York, but he really had to learn from scratch. He's an American. He had to learn to create a whole different persona. And even today, he often runs away. In Boyan, the Rebbe Davins prays by himself in a separate room. They never see him praying. And every so often, he runs away to a synagogue in the modern part of Jerusalem in Rechavia. You see this picture on the right. He comes incognito, and I, when I saw him there, I said, what are you doing here? He said, every so often, I need to clear my head. It's very difficult becoming a Rebbe overnight, as it were, transforming yourself. And every so often, he comes to America, where they have a place on Sackett Lake, up in the, in the Poconos, I think it is, and he lives this kind of double life, where he's been created, he's created himself into a Hasid and a Hasidic Rebbe, and it's a, it's an, a fascinating uh, transformation. Now, I want to switch. I don't have a lot of time. How long does this go? Where's the rabbi? The rabbi's gone already. <coughs> How long? 8.30. Okay, so I go a little more. Now we come to the case of too many successors. And that's the case of Babov. Babov is a dynasty that begins... Uh, it's the Halberstam family. It begins in Poland, in the little town of Bobova, which is not far from Krakow, if you've been to Poland. It's just a short drive to Bobova. And the Bobova Rebbe, <clears throat> the, uh, really the, the second Bobova Rebbe, is really one of the towering figures in Polish Hasidism. His name is Ben Sion Halberstam. And he is the Rebbe. And he has a son, Shlomo Halberstam, the man that you see here on the left, who is, he, he wants him to be the next Rebbe. In fact, for a time, uh, the Bubba Rebbe moves to another town and allows his son Shlomo to really run things in Bobov while he's away. And everything seems to be smooth and and Bobov Hasidim is, uh, Hasidism is growing by leaps and bounds. It's really the fact of its proximity to Krakow, the second largest city in Poland, is really very important. And then comes the Holocaust. And in September of 1939, like so many of the uh, Jewish men in that area, the rumor was that the Nazis are coming and they're going to go for the men and the boys first. 
and they'll leave the, the women and the young children alone. And so the Baba Varebbe and his son and his grandson, oldest grandson, the man you see on the right here, Naftali, start running to the east, running towards the Soviet border. And when they get there, uh, the, along the way they stop at Babavar Hasidim. And every time that the Babavar Rebbe with his family and his entourage reach a particular home of Hasidim, the Hasidim say, thank God the Babavar Rebbe is here, we're saved. Because what do they think about the Rebbe? The Rebbe is the intermediary between them and God, and he can save them. But of course the Babavar Rebbe knows he can't save anybody from the Nazis, and he's quickly running further. And ultimately, the Nazis catch them in a particularly brutal way. Ben Sion, the second Baba Varebbe, is murdered in public. Uh, there are some pictures of it. It's really a terrible thing. And his son, uh, uh, Shlomo, and his grandson are running. They shave their beards. Uh, the, the, the grandson doesn't have a beard quite yet, but they're on the run, and for most of the war, the, the man who is now officially the Baba Varebbe because his father has died, there's no big coronation. He's on the run, and he's trying to stay alive. He's trying to help Jews, and he's trying to stay, stay alive, and his family is divided. And without going into all of the details, it's an extraordinary story of... of death and near death and all he wants to do is save his son even more than he wants to save himself because the future of Babov is in the hands of his son and him and when the war is over his wife is dead some of his children are alive some of his children are dead he comes to New York a broken man he doesn't want to be a Hasidic Rebbe he has no strength to begin again. He just is in America. But a few of the Baba Hasidim come to him and they say, Rebbe, we need you. The fact that you survived means that we can survive. He was an icon for them, a collective representation. He was something special. And slowly but surely, he accepts their desires. He grows back his beard. Ultimately, he moves to Brooklyn. And in Brooklyn, gradually, he builds a massive court. Babov is the second largest Hasidic group in America. And he's open, and he's friendly, and he's charismatic, and he has a smile for everyone. And he is really a, a larger-than-life figure. And everyone knows that his successor has got to be Naftali, who has been with him through thick and thin. But he also marries again. And he starts a new family. And he has another firstborn son, whom he names for his father, Ben Sion. And Ben-Sion, the half-brother of Naphtali, everyone understands, will be the successor to Naphtali. It has to go because they're both the 
oldest sons of the Baba Varebbe. And now part of the problem of living too long begins to emerge. What happens to the Baba Varebbe? This is what happens to a lot of people who live too long. They have strokes, they have dementia. For the last five years of his life, the Baba Varebbe is a shadow of himself. And as a shadow of himself, when the Rebbe is weak, the Hasidim feel it. When the man who you believe is between you and God, they feel it. In the meantime, the wife of Naphtali is thinking, this is not a good situation. Because when my husband becomes the Rebbe, that's fine. But what about my daughters and my sons-in-law? Because if he is followed by his half-brother, we're out. And it turns out that Naphtali is not well himself. He has Parkinson's. And for many of the years when his father was this charismatic leader, Naphtali was his son, but he was not, didn't have the same charisma. He hung around the Mesa Midrash. He did some of the collecting of the funds. He did all of those secondary tasks. And when you have been the number two, it's not always easy to be raised to the number one. And then if in addition to all of that, you're weak, and sickened, and you have Parkinson's, it's very difficult. So when the Rebbe Shlomo Halberstam dies in the year 2000, and Naftali becomes the Rebbe, it's very difficult. And he cannot really, in most cases, where there is a succession, what happens to the Hasidic group when a new Rebbe comes in? He's younger. He is robust. He, he is the leadership that they have been waiting for. But what happened here is that didn't happen. They had another five years of weakness. And during that five years of weakness, his sons-in-law, his two sons-in-law, really ran the court. They helped him. And his half-brother did not want to grasp for the crown. He thought it was unbecoming to grasp for the crown. And all of his supporters said, you can't let this happen. These other people are, they are establishing a position that will put you in an untenable one. And everyone thought that when Naphtali dies, the fourth Baba Varebbe dies, we're going to have a problem on our hands. We're going to have a battle over the succession. There will be the forces of the older son from the second marriage, Ben Sion, the half-brother, versus the two sons-in-law. And some would argue, well, once Naphtali became the Rebbe, then it goes from his family. And others would say, no, it goes from the rabbi the third rabbi, Shlomo, who was the father of both of these. And sure enough, in 2005, only five years after he became Rebbe, Naphtali dies, and a war in Babov breaks out. And in that war, two Babova Rebbes emerge. One known 
colloquially as Bubba of 45, because they were on 45th Street in Brooklyn. And the other, Bubba of 48, because they were on 48th Street in Brooklyn. And what you see in this picture here is when a Rebbe becomes the Rebbe, and they all say, long live the Rebbe, they come, you remember those pidionos I said that they give? These little notes that are in front of Ben Sion here are the pidionos on the day that he was crowned by his supporters as the Baba Varebbe. And here is Mordechai Unger, the younger of the two sons-in-law of Naphtali, who has also declared himself as the Baba Varebbe. And of course, when you are the Baba Varebbe, the sort of wannabe Baba Varebbe, then it's very possible for a lot of Hasidim to get closer and closer to you because you want to do all you can to attract them. And when you have two people vying for the same title, well, we know what competition does. Competition makes both of them grow. And Babov has grown tremendously. And, and there was a great deal of violence and a great deal of back and forth. And how did they decide who ultimately should be the Baba Varebbe. And this is not just a question of leadership. We're talking about a lot of economic resources, of real estate, of treasure that uh, had been acquired over the years. Well, what happened and how this was resolved, I don't have time to tell you. <laughs> but I assure you, it's in the book. And we've run out of time. I want to just tell you that in Satmar, there are two Satmar Rebbes. And the reason that there are two Satma Rebbes is a story that is in itself an extraordinary story of one who was too high-handed and a younger brother who was brought back in because his father lived too long. And how did they, how did they come there? Because the, the original Satma Rebbe who we want to talk about, the man here on the left, Rabbi Yoelish Teitelbaum, uh, died without any children. He, his children predeceased him, and he had no heirs. And he had a wife, a second wife, who had no children as well. And during all the period that he was sick, she was the closest thing to a woman Rebbe that could ever be. And she had a plan for even when he died, she would remain the Rebbe, she would put a straw man in, and she would take her orders from his grave. But as you know, that couldn't happen. How that resolved itself, I have no time to tell you. <laughs> but I assure you, it's in there. And of course, the story of Lubavitch, we all know. Uh, <clears throat> the Lubavitch Rebbe and now saw himself as the King Messiah. I'll just say this one thing very briefly, and with that, I'll end. Messianism is a part of Hasidism. As long as there are successors and clear lines to succession, Hasidim don't talk about needing Messiah because a Rebbe can do anything that the Messiah can do. But when there is no clear successor, then they start talking about the Messiah because the advent, the coming of the Messiah solves the problem. From the time that the seventh Rebbe, Menachem Mendel, the son-in-law of the previous Rebbe, became the Rebbe, he had no children. He was already in his 40s. His wife was a year older. They knew there wouldn't be any children. So there was only one solution for them. We want the Mashiach now. And who could that Mashiach be? It would have to be 
their Rebbe. Who else could be their Mashiach? And of course, when you don't have children, children are a lesson in humility. If I ever said I'm the Messiah, my kids would say, Abba, get over it. You're not the Messiah. He had no one to tell him he wasn't the Messiah. It was a solution that they, evo- they, they evolved. And how they dealt with that, of course, is a long story that unfortunately I have no time to tell you about now. But it's also in the book. And it is a problem that didn't begin with Menachem Mendel. It began with his, the fifth Rebbe even before they reached the seven. It is also a fascinating story of messianism and succession, and I urge you all to read it, and then I'll come back for questions. Thank you very much. Yes? Can you explain a little bit more about the court? Yes. Please. So, uh, because uh, the question is, can I explain a little bit more about the court? When I say a court, I really mean the home of the Rebbe. Uh, The idea was that Hasidim wanted to be near the Rebbe as much as possible. They wanted to break bread with him. They wanted to pray with him. They wanted to ask him for blessings. They wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to watch the things that he does. And so the court became a place where they would come. Many of them wanted to live close to him, but they couldn't always live close to him. And in those days, you couldn't call him up for advice, and you couldn't uh, uh, get in touch with him in various other ways. So sometimes a Rebbe would send uh, messengers, emissaries, to tell his chassidim around the world what to do. Sometimes he would write a book and that book would tell them what to do. But in most cases they would come to him and he had to provide housing for them and he had to provide uh, uh, events and activities for them. And those events took place in the area of his court, which they supported. In some cases the courts could be lavish. There was a lot of money given. The more chassidim you had, the more money you had to support yourselves. Some Hasidim were known for their, uh, for example, the Babavar Hasidim, their wives were known for very stylish dressing, being very, very much uh, in vogue. Um, others lived in a very regal style. The Rizhiner Hasidim were known for their regal ways. Uh, others uh, were much more modest. Others had various kinds of things that they demanded, but the court essentially was the place where you met the Rebbe and could be in his presence. Thank you. You said the Babav uh, were the second largest. The largest of the Satmar. In America, the largest group of the Satmar Hasidim, and they've grown in part because they are in conflict with one another. And so if you go to Williamsburg, you'll see that the center of Williamsburg is empty, as it were. There's a shell of a building, and they've built two competing Uh, um, um, synagogues because part of what they want to show is that each side is more successful than the other. So Satmar is the biggest in America and the biggest in Israel is the Ger Hasidim. Whether Satmar and Ger, which is bigger worldwide, it's hard to know because we don't really have census figures that we can rely on. Yes? To what extent do you believe that the Hasidim are what are going to keep the Judaism alive? Do I believe that... There's an article in the New York Times today that's called The American Jews Face a Choice, Create Meaning or Fade Away. Yes. And so if, if we, if the question is, to what extent do I think that Hasidim are the future for American Jewry? I don't think they're the future for American Jewry, but if the question is creating meaning for them, 
meaning is, they don't have a question about creating meaning. They know what the meaning of Judaism is and they understand it through the person of their leader, through their Rebbe. Um, there was a time, uh, there was a, a, a book written in the 19, late 1950s called Conservative Judaism. And it talked about the decay of orthodoxy. Uh, today, uh, if we look at the way things are going, conservative Judaism, I'm not sure, has a long future. Orthodox Judaism is growing dynamically in ways that no one could have predicted. And Hasidism is growing even faster than Orthodox Judaism. So uh, I think nobody thinks there are not going to be other Satma Rebbes. And nobody thinks that Hasidism is going to disappear. Uh, I don't think all American Jews are going to become Hasidic by, by no means. But the Hasidim are very much uh, uh, convinced that the way that they have chosen offers them continuity and meaning. So I think if they were to read the New York Times, and sometimes they do, but not often, because English is not always easy for them, even though they live in America, um, that uh, they would say that is a foolish question. We know the answer to that question. The rest of Jewry, I'm not sure, would be able to answer in that way. Rabbi. One of the biggest factors that influence the political so the, the, there's only one factor that influences how the Hasidim vote, and that's what their Rebbe says. If the Rebbe told them to vote for a watermelon, they'd vote for a watermelon. Uh, and in fact, one of the, uh, although sometimes they have to understand the message that he's saying, and so sometimes he might say one thing for uh, outward um, uh, consumption and something else for the insider, but they're basically concerned with what candidates will give them what they think locally. They don't think globally. They think locally. Um, I was, uh, many years ago, when uh, Hillary Clinton was still running for Senate, she ran against a man, a Republican by the name of Rick Lazio. I happened to be in the Bubba Verstiebel when he came in there to speak to the throngs to elicit their votes. And he stood up in the middle of the synagogue and he's surrounded by a sea of black. And he says... I want you all to know I'm behind Israel 100%. And there was dead silence, dead silence. And somebody whispered in his ear, and he said, and I'm for aid for families with dependent children, and I'm for Section 8 housing, and I'm for women and infants and children subsidies. And there was a big roar, but he'd already lost the election with his first statement. And to be sure, they voted for Hillary because they knew that she was going to provide for their needs. But on the other hand, now when the Republicans say they're going to give vouchers for private education, and when they say, we don't care what you teach in your schools, don't bother us with the details, they're going to vote for that. And when Cuomo was running for governor now, and he made a deal where he said, we don't care even if your schools are not up to the standards of what schools have to teach in the state of New York, that's okay. You do what you have to do. He got their votes and he was elected. They always, one thing you can be sure about the Hasidim, they always want to vote for the winner. They never want to vote for the loser. And in many ways, they are the canary in the mind. Uh, in the mind. So if you look at the way they vote, it's better than some of the polls. I'd, before I'd go to 538 blog, I'd go to Satmar to find out <laughs> who, who are they voting for in 2020 to find out what's going to happen. I think maybe one more, yeah. 
Yes, sir. Well, uh, for example, I think Chabad as a movement has been very successful in its, in its evangelizing and really have found a way to talk to all kinds of people in the world, Jews of all different stripes and even uh, non-Jews. I mean, if, if you look at, I just came from California, Rabbi Kunin in L.A. Uh, I saw him dancing with a man named Schwarzenegger whose father was a Nazi. You can't get more of a bridge than that. So uh, the, the fact of the matter is there are some who have learned to make these bridges. Um, and the truth is that for all of their insularity, uh, they have been touched by the modern world. They have, even though there were many rabbis who opposed the Internet, because they're very much afraid of the Internet, because they know the, the, the Internet, uh, there's a pocket, uh, you can keep in your pocket a window in the world. And I went to one of these rabbis, and I was waiting in his outer office. He was one of the supporters for uh, opposing the internet. And while I was waiting to meet with him, uh, you know, like any modern person, I took out my phone, and he had Wi-Fi. So <laughs> clearly, even, even in that world, there, the modern world seeps in. So in the end, I think you know, there is a limit to the insularity that's possible in the world that, uh, that we live in now. And, uh, but will it change fast enough? I don't know. We live in very polarized times. Thank, Thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.